The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning. How's everybody in the back? These guys are a little louder than you. I'm just saying. That's all, that's all I'm saying. Am I even on? Am I going? Am I good? Am I here? Everybody can hear me? Okay. How many fingers am I holding up? Oh. Am I not coming through? I'm not coming through. I could just talk really loud, like old school, you know? Hey, 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 check, check, check. Nothing? Nothing at all. It's just not coming through? Hey, hello. Hello. Not nothing. Oh, man. Now I can't use my hands. Check, check. We got it good now? You good now? You got me? Give me some affirmation. Yes? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I've never preached holding a mic, so this is going to be really awkward. I'll just try to, try to figure it out. All right, guys. Hey, let's, uh, let's pray. Before we actually pray, before we, we dive in today, um, let's take about 20 seconds. And I actually want you guys to engage your hearts to the Lord. And I actually want you to take a second and, and begin to ask Him to speak to you. Um, something happens, I'm telling you, something happens when... You go from just sitting and waiting for someone to move you to actually saying, okay, God, I'm, I'm wanting and I'm ready for you to speak to me and I'm ready for you to move and, and to bring truth into my life. So I want to take 20, 20 seconds and I want you guys to pray to the Lord to speak to you this morning and then we'll get right to work. Let's do that. And so, Father, this morning, God, we, we want to open our hearts to you, Lord. God, our, our default position is to hide from you, just like Adam hid in the garden. Lord, our tendency is to want you not to see us. Our tendency is to not want to hear your voice. God, but we pray you would speak through that, that you would work past that, God. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. We want to be reminded of your love, reminded of your goodness, reminded of your power, of your grace, God. So, Lord Jesus, would you, by your Holy Spirit, come upon this place in such a way that would leave no person unmoved? Lord, just like on Pentecost, God, would we all be affected this morning by the gospel? Would we all be set free this morning by the gospel? Would we be changed forever by the gospel this morning, Lord? pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So he falls to his knees, confused about what's going on. If anyone needs a Bible, by the way, throw your hand up and we'll bring you a Bible. That's a gift to you if you need one. Hello, hello, hello. It does? I don't think so. We're going to use this. Whoa. Okay, let's pray again. Good night. A young man falls to his knees, confused about what's going on. His heart is pounding. Um, the sun is beating down on his neck. He's scared. He's afraid. 
Circled around him is a group of the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, each of them holding a rock or stone in their hand, eager, excited, ready to pummel the head of this young man and destroy what life is left in him. Each of them, their eyes piercing him with anger and with frustration with the message that he brought. And this young man on his knees His head is confused. His mind is is like a tangled rat's nest. He can't think clearly. He can't figure out what's going on. What should he do? What does he say? He's completely stunned that the religious leaders would have so much hatred towards him, that they would want to destroy him, that they would want to see him dead, that they would want to see all of the life leave his body. He begins to find clarity and comfort as he stops and thinks to what has happened in the last few months. You see, the last few months for this young man were the greatest months of his life. Something happened. This man, Jesus, this carpenter, this rabbi from the Galilee emerged onto the scene and left nothing unchanged. He went to the cross, murdered by Rome and the religious leaders. And then after that, he sent his Holy Spirit, which came in power among thousands, saving thousands, setting free thousands. And wherever this young man went after Jesus came, the Holy Spirit seemed to do works through him. He was even amazed as he he would see people that were sick and he would be able to heal them by the power of God. He would see people living in sin and the message that he brought would powerfully change and transform their lives. The momentum of this season was overwhelming. He couldn't even believe what was happening, how God was working. And then like a train pummeling into a brick wall, everything changed as he now sits surrounded by the religious leaders that want him dead. That want him dead. What are the accusations they're bringing against him? One of the false witnesses speak up and says, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered us. These were the accusations they were bringing against him. And as the last accuser spoke, a hush fell over the crowd as they waited for Stephen to speak, this young man. This disciple of Jesus, this member of the early church, what would he say? How would he respond Stephen, feeling scared, knowing whatever he said was going to ultimately bring him death, not knowing what to say, he felt confused. And then in a moment, like a huge gust of wind that blows you over, Stephen found clarity as God began to speak through him. And the words that came out of his mouth were overwhelming, even to those who wanted him dead, even to the religious leaders as he reasoned with them the gospel and the good news all throughout the scriptures, accusing Literally, those in front of him of killing Jesus. Listen to his words. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous. One whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The boldness of Stephen as he declares the hypocrisy of the religious people that want him dead. And the anger begins to swell. And the stones begin to raise, each of them longing to just throw the rock and give that killer blow. But Stephen isn't the character I want you guys to see. 
I want you to pan over, to zoom the lens out, and look at another character that the writer of the book of Acts decided to include in this story. As amazing as this story is, the character I want you to see was actually not part of the mob. Though he wasn't one with a stone in his hand, he was very much responsible for what was happening. You see, while Stephen is pleading and giving his case for the gospel, and while he's surrounded by those wanting to kill him, there's a man off to the side who seems to be controlling the whole thing. As Stephen's talking, they quickly, the mob continually looks over to this man as if waiting for him to give them the sign to be able to throw their rocks and take his life. This man was the organizer of the whole mob. This was the man that planted the false witnesses. This was the man that brought Stephen out into the streets in front of the people and accused him ultimately. Though his, it wasn't his hands that was doing it, he was the one that had so much hatred in his heart for the Christian church. But here's the interesting thing about this man. You see, when you look at the eyes of the mob, you just see bloodthirsty eyes. When you look at the eyes of this man controlling this whole thing, you don't see bloodthirst. You see even something more scary. You see someone that actually thinks he's doing the will of God by having this young man put to death and murdered. This man was religious. He was pious. He was the leader of the persecution of the church charged with the murder of the early church. The organizer of the persecution of the church. This man hated the Christian church. He hated the gospel that Jesus spoke. He hated the Christ. And he did it all out of a true belief that he was serving God. So, in one moment, he gives them the high sign. They take him out of the city and they stone Stephen to death. And as he's being stoned, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks up to heaven. He says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You guys ever read that story? The book of Acts? One of the first martyrs of the early church. The question is, who is this man that could organize such a thing? Okay, who is this man that, that could, could bring about such an evil and dastardly deed of murdering a young man who God had so used and so mightily worked through? Who is that man? Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. For those of you that are joining us, uh, we're in the book of Philippians now. We've just started it out. Uh, Philippians is in the New Testament. So, Philippian on over. Oh, I had to use that one. No, but seriously, guys, it's the best Philippian book in the Bible. It's, uh... Who is this man? Who is this man that so hated and so persecuted the church? Listen to his words years later. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8 in our text. The same man that persecuted and killed the church now says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you. <laughs> oh, with the affection of Christ Jesus, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve 
what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Here is a man who was a religious terrorist, who murdered countless Christians, who organized the persecution of the early church in so many ways, and years later, we find him telling that same church that he yearns for them, that he loves them, that he aches for them. What happened? This person was no, none other than Paul the Apostle, formerly Saul, who Acts, the book of Acts tells us, was in many ways the leader of persecuting the church. Yet here we find him in our text in Philippians, as Jeff has said over and over, gushing about the church, gushing about his church, about his people, his family. In uh, King James Version of verse 8, it literally says, and this sounds funny, so bear with me. It says, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. You're like, that's weird. Okay, but here's what the King James language is, is doing. The, the word bowels literally meant the deepest parts of your being, your guts, you ever feel in your guts when, when you really are emotional and you're really stirred, you feel sick? Or you really have longing for something, you feel it in your guts? That's what King James is saying. Paul is saying, I long for you, I desire you, oh Philippian church, body, family, with, from the deepest parts of my heart and my soul. He loves the church. How can this man love the church that he killed? How can this man love the church that he once sought to destroy? What happened to Saul? What made him Paul? What you are seeing is a result of a man who has been changed by love. A man that has been changed by love. Paul's capacity to love was exponentially multiplied because his understanding of who love was was exponentially multiplied. Okay? If you guys are taking notes, and if you have a scrap of paper, if you have a pen, will you please write this down? Because this is the most important sentence I'm going to say all morning. And I want to spend the rest of this teaching simply explaining this sentence, okay? So if you have a pen, write this down, and I'll, I'll, I'll cite it multiple times. It's up on the screen. And it's just simply this. To truly love, you must first be truly loved and know who love truly is. Write that down. We're going to unpack that this morning. I want to talk to you guys this morning, ultimately, about love. You say, well, that's typical. It's church. You're supposed to talk about love, right? But I want to talk about what love truly is. I don't want to talk about the love that, that uh, the world says. I want to understand what true love is. And I want to talk about the love that could transform Paul, that could make him from a terrorist seeking to kill Christians to a man that would give his life to see them made and to see them grow. You see, in verse 9 of our text, it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. One of the coolest things about the epistles sometimes when you read them, that epistle basically is just a letter from Paul to his church um, or from an apostle to the church, uh, is when we get to see what they prayed for the church. There's something similar to this in the book of Ephesians that we studied where Paul says, this is what I pray for you. And in verse 9, we're basically getting a glimpse into what Paul the apostle is praying for his church. These are the things that I'm praying for you. 
And specifically in this case, he says, I'm praying for you that your love may abound. Okay, that your love may grow, that your love may increase with knowledge and discernment. So Paul's not only praying that their love would increase, but more specifically, that their knowledge and their discernment, that their understanding of love would increase. Okay? So I want to talk about that this morning. Now, the idea of love is universal, isn't it? I was thinking about this this week. There's not a lot of things that are more universal than love. Love is a word or idea that transcends all races, all religions, all borders, all countries. Everyone believes in love. Do they not? Everyone has a word for love. Every nation has a a definition. Every religion has a definition. Every religion has a theology of love. Every worldview embraces love in one way or another. Okay? Everyone would agree that love is a good thing. Everyone would agree that, that love is a great thing. Now, if you took just these few words out of our text where Paul says, I pray that your love may abound, and you just took that out right there, that would preach anywhere. I pray that your love may abound. I could take those words and, and, and I could literally go to an LGBT convention, okay? And I could say that the, the, the title of my speech is that love would abound and they would all join and clap and, and be all about that. I could go to a universalist church, a church where they believe all roads lead to heaven, and I could say the title of my message this morning is that love may abound and they would agree and they would clap and they would be all about that. Okay? Gandhi could get up and tell his followers or whatever that, that their love should abound. There's so many different places that you could preach that message. Um, I could run a godless, liberal, political campaign um, as an atheist who wanted nothing to do with God, and that would be my crowd, and literally say, I just want love to abound in America, and everyone would join me. I could say that. I could use that. Porn shops in this valley use the word love, don't they? Essential for lovers. The word love is anything and everything. Love is used all of the time. It's thrown around everywhere. Love is not only the most universal word, I think it's also, too, the most misunderstood word. Our culture does not understand what love truly is. It needs to be defined clearly. So here's kind of the roadmap of where I want to go this morning, okay? Here's what I want to do. First of all, I want to ask the question, what is love? Okay, I know you're thinking of that 80s song. What is love, baby? Anybody know that song? That's not what I'm talking about. Does that song ever answer this? What is love? No, no, no. Um, we're going to ask the question, what is love? Okay? And, and I think to do that, I want to start by actually looking at what our culture has said love is. Because sometimes the most helpful way to know what something is is to know what it isn't, right? So we'll start by looking at what does the culture say that love is. And then secondly, we'll contrast that with what love truly is. Does that sound good? Man, this mic would be really cool if I could, like, tape it right here. You know what I mean? So I wouldn't, so I wouldn't have to hold it? I, just, I think I might invent that. I want you to think about this like this, okay? Picture a tree, okay? And I want you to think of your understanding of love as the soil that that tree is planted in. Now, depending on what kind of soil that your tree is planted in, it will completely determine the kind of fruit that will come out of that tree. And what I hope to do this morning with you guys is to show you what kind of soil your idea of love is planted in. So we're going to flush out 
each of these things, each of these lies that the world has shown. And I want you to, to be honest with yourself and think, have I believed this lie about love? Have I bought into, have I been shaped by what the culture has tried to tell me that love is? Okay, so we're going to try to flush it out in lots of different areas of life. And I want to do this by looking at five lies. Okay, so five lies. If you guys are note takers, you love outlines and you can write one and do number one. Okay, five lies about love that our culture has fed us. The first one is this. The first lie is this, that love is to be self-defined. Love is to be self-defined. See, we live in a culture where we no longer believe in absolute truth. Okay, there is a reason that the universalist mindset is dominating our culture. It basically says that there is no absolute truth. If you go to the Truth Project Bible study with Jeff on Thursdays, you'll learn about this, okay? There is no such thing as absolute truth. This is what our culture says. We can't agree that there is absolute truth, so therefore it's up to you to decide what truth is for yourself, right? Now that mindset has permeated every nook and cranny of our culture to the point where now you can't tell me what gender I should be. You can't tell me what, uh, what truth is. You can't tell me how I should live. You can't tell me anything because there is no absolute truth. So therefore, I get to decide exactly how I live. I get to decide what's right or what's wrong. And we as a culture have become essentially the gods of our own lives who get to decide what is right or wrong. And that has played out and flushed out in the avenue of love. Our culture believes that it is up to ourselves to define what love is, okay? Our culture is obsessed with love, but it has no idea what love truly is. Let me give you some examples. I, I just got on Google and I started, you know, just Googling, what is love? Which I, I've heard before apparently is the most Googled question that there is. Um, but just started pulling up some of these things. I tried to avoid the religious sites because I really wanted to hear what is, what is the average person in our country think that love is? And here's where some of the answers that I got. Um, First one I pulled up was Yahoo Answers, and these were just anonymous people that were writing in what they defined love as. Here's the first one. God is imaginary. Love is real. Love is not a God. Love is an emotion. Okay, what is that last part? Love is an emotion. Okay, and then most people would probably agree with that. Love is a feeling. So the translation of that is that God is fake, but love is real. And I know that because I feel it. Okay, that's what a lot of people would say. Here's another one. Got this one out of Urban Dictionary. If, it's love if you have great chemistry, you get lost in your conversations, and the hours pass like minutes. You're more than willing to listen to her when she talks about her day. The chemistry between you is remarkable. This is funny. You find her beautiful even if you catch her with no makeup on and her hair pulled back while she's unclogging the toilet. She still looks beautiful to you. Funny, right? That's what love is, right? Man, I just still think my wife's hot even when she's unclogging the toilet. That must be love. That's, that's not love. Here's another one. This one's even funnier. Nature's way of tricking people into reproduction. <laughs> Good. That's great. So those were all kind of like answers you would probably hear from just about anybody. But I also wanted to get an answer. What about someone that's educated? 
What about someone that's really done research on a, on a physical, biological level? What does love mean to them? So I found this guy named Jim, I can't even pronounce his name, Al-Kalahalaka, something like that. Um, and he's a theoretical physicist, I don't even know what that means, and science writer. And this is what he said about love. He said, biologically, you always know it's going to be really hard to understand when it starts off with that word, right? <laughs> biologically, love is a powerful, powerful neurological condition like hunger or thirst, only more permanent. We talk about love being blind or unconditional in the sense that we have no control over it, but then that is not so surprising since love is basically chemistry. Hear that? However, from an evolutionary perspective, love can be viewed as a survival tool, a mechanism. We have evolved to promote long-term relationships, mutual defense, and parental support of children, and to promote feelings of, sa of safety and security. Man, that guy is so smart. I'm so glad that we have him around to tell us what love is, because, you know, you can actually discover what love is with a microscope. Did you know that? If you open up the brain. No, you can't. You can't. He's saying that love is essentially something that is just a, a, a mixture, a cocktail of chemicals that are released in your brain, sort of a, 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 like, just like dopamine, but more, right? That, that love is just this feeling. That, but really, it's just something that evolution has brought, whoever evolution is that, that can do these things, evolution is somehow brought about so that we can survive better. So evolution made me love my kids so that we wouldn't, you know, let them sit out in the rain. Or evolution made us love our kids so we wouldn't eat them, or whatever. I mean, like evolution is somehow like looking out for us and has given us this chemical release called love. Completely wrong. Completely wrong. Wrong. Now, what's the result of defining love for yourself? What happens when you define love for yourself? Well, first of all, love ends up meaning anything and everything at the same time. It means anything you want it to mean, and it means everything someone else wants it to mean, and therefore means nothing at all. I can't think of a better definition of love in our culture. Everyone has decided that I get to call love whatever I want to call love, and therefore, it ends up being absolutely nothing at all. It becomes a, drunk, a junk drawer catching everything that people think is right or wrong. Love is no longer an anchor that holds us to what is right and what is good and what is true. Love becomes an engine that pushes us and propels us to whatever we want. Love is an excuse. Love is something that allows me to do whatever I want because if I call it love, then therefore I feel like I'm a good person. Don't believe me? What in the world is driving this LGBT thing right now? What is driving that? What is driving that is a false understanding of what love is. They think that it is loving to tell someone that they can be whatever gender they want to be. It's not true. It's not loving. Love is defined in our culture as whatever you think is right. If you think it's right, then we will love you. And loving is letting you be whatever you want to be and do whatever you want to do. People use love as an excuse to do anything that they want to do. People cheat on and leave their wives or cheat on and leave their husbands and say, but it's for love. How many movies in our culture are completely rooted in this idea that adultery can be love? Oh, he left her for another girl, but he loved her more, so it's okay. No. 
That is a cultural definition of love that is not true in any way. You're being selfish. No, I'm being loving. I'm loving, I'm loving myself, okay? And our culture tells us to love ourselves, doesn't it? So if I go up and I rob someone, I take money from them, I can say, but no, it's loving. I'm loving myself. I love myself, and so I want to give myself your money. So go ahead and fork it over. But that's what I define love as. And if there's no truth, if there's no anchor or absolute truth, then I could call it whatever I want, and you can't tell me otherwise, can you? No. Love is what I want it to be, and you can't correct it. The world is consuming a counterfeit love, and it's dying of starvation because it's not real. The second lie is this. Man, I don't have a clock today, so I just start throwing stuff at me if I go long. Um, love is a feeling. This is the second lie. Love is a feeling. In other words, love is simply that tingling you get when you see that girl or that guy that you like. It's that, that butterflies that you get when you see someone that, that you like or that you like being around. It's the comfort that you feel when you're with your friend and you just feel so good. It's, it's the, the, the enduring emotion that you experience when you see your kids playing on the floor. That's love. Okay? It's feeling. It's emotion. Now, love can sometimes result in feeling, yes. But is love feeling? No. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Four Loves, which is an incredible read, by the way, um, where he breaks down love from lots of different uh, perspectives. And he calls it this, he calls it need love. He says there is a type of love that is not love at all, but it's called need love. And what it is, is, is you're not really loving someone because you love them. You're loving them because you have a need that they're fulfilling for you. And when you love based on feeling, you're basically saying that I just like the way I feel when I'm with you. Okay? I love you, but really, I just love how, I, how, how you make me feel. I love the things that you benefit me in my life. I love what happens when we're together. And C.S. Lewis says basically, he says this, we are born helpless. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally, intellectually. We need them if we are to know anything, even ourselves. So essentially what he's saying is we are born in a state of need. And we can never truly and authentically love because we always need something from someone. Now, I love my wife, but much of my love for my wife, unfortunately, is that I love how I feel with my wife. I love my kids, but unfortunately, a lot of that is I love how happy I am when I'm with them, and I love being a parent, and I love the joy that comes with that. I can't honestly say that I love them completely selflessly. Love cannot be based, true love cannot be based in feeling, cannot be based in need. Now, the result of believing that love is merely a feeling is basically our culture. 50% of marriages end in divorce, and that's in the church and in the world, okay? Every time you say that statistic, you're like, oh, yeah, that's in the world. No, that's in the church, too. Half of marriages are ending. Okay, a covenant that is supposed to be for the entirety of life are ending because people say this, I don't feel like I love you anymore. And if love is a feeling, then as soon as you stop feeling it, you're gone. Right? You see this in friendships. We live in the most, one of the most shallow eras ever when it comes to friendships. Okay, we don't really know each other. We don't really love each other. We network based on common interests. We network based on what we can get from that person. We know people because we want to know people because we want to get something from them. OK? 
okay? It's largely what our relationships are today. We see this in the church where people say they love the church, but really they're not picking the church to love the church. They're picking the church because the, lo- the church gives them something. I like how I feel when I come to Heritage. I like how I feel when the music's good. I like how I feel when Pastor Jeff preaches. That's all good, but you don't love the church if that's the only reason you come. Does that make sense? Because love is not rooted simply in what you receive from the person that you love. I gotta speed up. The love, number three, the, the third lie that people buy is this. Love is earned. So not only is love self-defined and not only is love a feeling, but thirdly, the world has told us that love is earned. In other words, love is something that is to be earned before we give it out. Okay? So I will love you if you earn it. I will respect you, I will care about you if you earn my love, if you earn my care, if you earn my respect. Just in the last couple of weeks as a pastor, I've witnessed two marriages fall apart because two different people in each marriage said, I'm leaving because you're not filling my emotional needs. Okay? So what you're basically saying is, I loved you because you did something for me. And now that you're not doing that for me, I no longer love you. Now that you're not fulfilling my needs, now that you're not earning my love, I'm out, I'm gone. You hear this in most wedding vows nowadays. It's all about, I love you because of this and I love you because of that. Well, what happens if those things are gone? I love you because you're funny. I love you because you're good looking. I love you because the way I feel around you. Okay, what happens when that's all gone? What kind of love are you left with? That's not a robust love. That's not an eternal love. That's not a love that has weight and power. That's a, a love that has no power to save. It's a lie. The result of this is that we crush everyone around us with expectations that they don't even know we have on them. Because our love is earned, people that don't even know it are just waiting for us to break off relationship with them as soon as they stop earning it. Our kids see this. Do you know that? Our kids see when we love based on um, on earning. Our, Our kids see when we love people based on what they do for us, and they fear that they will not be loved. Because they've seen how you've decided to not love their mom. You've decided, they've seen how you've decided not to love your friend simply because of what they did. And they are insecure for that. Kids hide sin because they're afraid that if their parents knew what they were doing, they would no longer love them. And you may say, that's crazy, but you're modeling it for them in your relationships. It flushes itself out in marriage where we no longer are there to partner with each other. We're sin sniffers. We're examiners of right and wrong. You're keeping a list in your head at the back of how many times he's done that thing you didn't want him to do and how many times she's done that thing you told her not to do anymore and you're keeping a list and when that list begins to tip, you're out. It's not love. It's not love. It's self-serving. This shows up in the church largely with false religion. People come through the door and they hide who they are because they're afraid that if they show who they are, they will not be loved. It's because of a false love and a false understanding of love. Lie number four. Anybody have any roots in these yet? I know I do. Anybody been lied to about love yet? I know I have. Number four, love is blind. This is the other lie, okay? Not only is love self-defined, not only is love a feeling, and not only is love earned, but fourthly, love is blind. This is the lie. This is how it goes. The most loving thing you can do is to simply overlook or ignore problems. A lot of people in our culture, a lot of people in church think that that is actually loving. 
It's kind of like that newly engaged couple, right? They don't see any of each other's flaws at all. They're completely blind to it. And, and the world would say, oh, that's just love. And once you, becoming aware, once you start becoming aware of flaws, it must not be love anymore. Love is not blind. Infatuation is blind. Love is not blind. Blind love, listen, blind love is selfish love. Because what blind love is saying is that I love me more than you. Because I would rather keep this false idea of you then embrace the reality of who you actually are. So I'm going to close my eyes to the things that you do and the things that you've done because I like the idea of you better than the real you. That's a false love. The, the, the number one example I could think of is parents with their kids. Parents, you ever met a parent, maybe you are one, that's completely delusional about your kid's sin? You think your kid is the greatest thing in the world? And someone tries to tell you, actually, you know, your son or your daughter did something really, really horrible. And they just say, no, it couldn't be my son. I remember when I was a kid, my friend and I climbed up a ladder in our old church, and we just thought it'd be so fun to just marker the whole place. And it was cool because we did, you know, we wrote like Jesus and stuff. But it, that, for some reason, that didn't seem to help at all at the end of the day. And so my parents, they have this great understanding of, of my sinful nature. They tell me about it all the time. It's great. Um, and so they were like, yeah, my son's a sinner, you know, totally get it. The, the kid that I did it with, his mom was in complete denial about it. That couldn't be my son. There's no way. He doesn't do things like that. I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you met your son? Like, you need to sit down and talk to your son and figure out who he is because you are blind. And that is not love. That is selfishness. Because ultimately, that mom didn't want to know her son. She didn't want to know his struggles. She didn't want to be there to help him. She didn't want to be there to help him grow. She just simply wanted to be blind to it so she could believe the delusional idea that her son was perfect because she's selfish. Right? That's not love. That's not love. It's like TV. You start to prefer the false to the reality. I'd rather just watch this romance than actually go have it. I'd rather just watch this camaraderie, this friendship, whatever, on TV than actually go have it. Because, you know what, this is just easier. Love is not blind. Line number five is this, that love can be produced. And this is a big one. Our culture believes, and most people, even in churches whether on a subconscious level or a conscious level, believe that they can actually conjure up love. There are people that think, there's been a lot of songs written about it, a lot of songs while smoking doobies, saying about love and how it could change and fix the world, right? There's been so much talk in our culture about how love would fix the world. If we could just love more, if we could just get more love into the world, if we could get more love into the terrace, if we could get more... Okay, first of all, no. Because your idea of love is not true love. And second of all, you and I are not capable of producing true love. We are not capable of loving enough to fix anything. You know what you and I are capable of? Read a history book. Blood and bloodshed, and violence, and oppression, and sin, and death. That's what we produce as humans. 
okay? We are not capable of producing the love that is needed to fix this world. And what happens when you believe that you can? You get jaded. Either at yourself or at the person that you think is supposed to love you. Okay? And a lot of people have given up on love. You know that? A lot of people have given up on love because they've decided it must not be real. Because I can't seem to produce it. And they're right. They can't produce it. So, what is love? What is love? There is a distinction between true love and false love. And here's one way you know. True love transforms us, and false love destroys us. Paul the Apostle, before he was transformed by love, was not living under the, God, the love of God. He was living under an ideal that he had to earn the love of God. And when his eyes were opened to the fact that he did not, everything changed for him. He was a slave to a false understanding of what love was. A complete slave. And the love that Paul is praying over the church in our text is not a love that destroys, but a love that transforms. He's not praying over them the love that the world is giving us. He's not saying, well, I just pray that the love of this world would manifest, that the love that is based on feeling and the love that has to be earned and the love that thinks it can produce itself and the, the love that's self-defined would manifest. And he's not praying any of that because Paul knows that love is worthless. It does nothing, transforms nothing. He's praying that true love would transform them. So the question is, what is true love? What is true love? Well, where do we start? The Bible says a lot about love. But where do we start? Love is not something we can define because love is not something that we created, right? If I make something, I can tell you how I made it. If I don't make something, I can't tell you how it was made. We don't even know how our bodies work yet. We're still trying to figure that out. We don't even understand how our eyeball works completely or our brain or any of the things that we didn't make. You honestly think you can tell me or God what love is? You think you can define something that you didn't even create? And we can't fully grasp love because love is eternal. Okay, everybody touch the left side of your head. I'll touch the right side of your head. It starts here, it ends here. That's not eternal. Your brain is not eternal. That means you can't grasp eternal things. Your brain runs out of RAM. It runs out of space. It runs out of hard drive. Mine runs out much quicker than most people's. Okay? But your brain is not eternal. So you can't fit eternal thoughts into your head. Love is eternal. It's never beginning and it's never ending. It always has been and it always will be. But to understand love, we have to go to the origin. But love has never had an origin. Not Oregon. Origin, just to, just to clarify. Love has never had an origin because love has always been. Love has had no beginning. Listen, love is not merely a feeling. It is not merely an emotion. It is not merely a choice. And it is not even an action. Love is a person. Can I say that again? Love is not an action. It's not a feeling. It's not a choice. It's not even a thing. Love is a person. Listen to what the Apostle John said in 1 John 4, 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, let me just make sure this is clear. Not God created love. Not God somewhere along the way said, I think I should make something called love. No. God is love. He is the definition of love. They are synonymous. And therefore, everything and anything that God does is loving. Because it is His nature. In His nature. They're synonymous. So, love is not something that I can simply feel or something that I can simply produce because it's not a feeling. It's a person. It is God. He is love. And you might be saying, well, Sam, if God is love, then and we can't produce it, then why are there people doing loving things in the world? Well, that's very simple. We were created in the image of God. We were created in the image of a God that is love. And therefore, we have some leftovers, okay? Even though we're disconnected in many ways, most of the world is disconnected from God's love, in many ways they still can produce it because they're made in His image. My son will have tendencies that are like mine because he has my DNA in him. And even though he's not me, he will have tendencies of me. So we are created, whether we are godless or God-fearing or whatever, we are created in the image of God who is love, and therefore we can still do loving things. But we cannot produce it. God is the one that produces true love through us. Now, if we are incapable of true love, and if love is a person, how can we ever know true love? If we are incapable of true love, and if Love is a person. How can we ever know true love? Well, look down at your paper. Uh, hopefully you wrote that sentence down somewhere. Once again, this is, this is the most important thing I want you to hear. To truly love, you must first be truly loved and know who true love is. To truly love, you have to first be loved. Because you are incapable of producing it, you have to experience it first. To know how to model it, to know how to echo it, you have to experience it. And the only way to experience it is through God, because He is love. First John 4.10 says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That is the good news, that he loved us first. So is love self-defined? No, because love is not something you can make up or define. Love is a person. Okay, we got that? Secondly, the world says, once again, the world says love is merely a feeling, right? Love is just a feeling. Well, God's love is not based on feeling. What if God said, I don't really feel like going to the cross? What if Jesus said, I, in fact, he did. <laughs> in the garden, he said, if there be any other way, will you sweat drops of blood? If there's any other way for me to purchase this bride than to go to the cross, then let me go. He didn't feel like going to the cross. He didn't feel like absorbing the wrath of God, but he did it anyways because God's love is not based on feeling. God's love is not, love is not weak like ours. Need is a creature word, right? God didn't need 
to feel something from us. God didn't need anything from us. His love is pure and is perfect because he loved us for no other reason than his own love. He loved us not because he needed something from us. He wanted a feeling that he got when he was around us. He loves us because he loves us, because he is love, because he is perfect. That is a strong love, a perfect love. That's the love that transforms. Now, the result of that, if you believe that, how that's going to play itself out in your life, is that you now have a stronger and more robust understanding of what love is. A love that can change people's lives around you. Now, let me just say this quickly. Love is not merely a feeling, but love is to feel. Let me say that. I said that wrong. Love is not merely a feeling, but to love is to feel. So, in other words, if you're loving, you're going to feel. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and, per- and um, whatever that word is, is hell. He's basically saying that if you love, you will feel. Do you know how we know that? Because God the Father feels His love is not based on feeling, but because his love is there, he feels. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. God weeps and longs for the lost to be saved. He has feeling because he loves. And sometimes love needs to precede feeling. Amen? Sometimes we need to love until we feel. Our call is to be lovers that are wrung out and willing to be wrung out for the mission and for Jesus. That you are willing to be broken. You are willing to be wrung out, as C.S. Lewis says. You are willing to be trampled on emotionally in order that you might love. Because that's how God loved, not holding back. And the world says you are to love those that only those that deserve it, right? The world says you love because someone earns it, because someone deserves it. Is that how our God loves us? Absolutely not. You know why we're so wired to love people contractually? Because we're fallen. Because we have fallen from the top of the hill. We were with God in fellowship, and now we're at the bottom. And we climb to get back to Him. And it is in our nature to try to climb, to achieve, and reach the love of God. But what God says is that my love is not simply giving you a way to climb the hill like the law. My love is that I will come down the hill and carry you up. See, God's love is not dependent on my performance. That is a weak love. That is a selfish love. God's love, which is perfect and strong, carries me up the hill. That is the strength of God's love. The world says that love closes its eyes, right? The world says that that love should just not see things if they're bad. Is that what God's love does? Listen, 
God's eyes are not closed to the sin and the injustice of this world. He is not a coward. He is not a selfish God that chooses not to see his kids when they're at their worst. He watches with eyes wide open. He sees you when you sin. He sees you when you fall. He doesn't turn his eye like a parent that selfishly wants to think of his child as perfect. He knows your sin. You know why he knows it? Because he drank it. Because he covered it. Because he chose to take the beating for it. Our God is not a God that is scared to look on sin. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a God that sees all sin and deals with it. Our God is a God that deals with our sin for us. His love is not an immature love. His love is not the love that that simply chooses not to see faults. His love is the maturest of love that knows all faults and all flaws. His love is not a foolish love, a a love that just simply doesn't understand what he's getting into, like maybe the the 18-year-old that just got married and didn't realize what he was doing, right? That's not God's love. He knows exactly what he's getting into. When he chose you before the foundations of the earth, when you still hated his guts, he loved you and he knew your flaws, and he loved you anyways. That is a strong love. That is a love that saves. That is a love that the world needs. That is the love that the gospel preaches. Amen? It is a burning fire. And love does not see and ignores. Love takes action. Look at our text. He prays specifically that their love would abound in knowledge and wisdom. That means that love is not a floppy piece of toast. Love is not a limp noodle. Love says, I will take action on what is right. I will see things with eyes wide open, and then we will act. Because love acts. Love acts. And lastly, the world says that we are capable of producing love. But the reality is that only God can produce love. Only God can produce love. So maybe you're sitting here and you feel kind of beat up. Sam, a lot of those things that you said were me. A lot of those things that that I feel are me. A lot of those things that you talked about are me. Well, join the club, okay? The reality is, is that we are not capable of producing the love that we need to produce to change anything. We're not capable of it. But look at our text. Look at what he says in verse 8. You could easily read over this, but it's important. He says that he yearns for them with the affection of Paul the Apostle? No. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, the love that Paul had for his church was not a love that he produced. It was not a love that he welled up inside of him, that he earned. It was a love that was given through him. It was a love that was produced through him. He says in verse 11 in our text, he says that you are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. In other words, you cannot produce true love, but God, who is love, wants to produce it through you. Through you. Jesus tells a story, a parable about a vine and branches on that vine. OK? 
Okay, you picture a glorious vine with lots of fruit and it's summer and you come up and you, you take a piece of fruit off of that vine or that tree or whatever helps you visualize it. And you think, what a miraculous branch that was that just held that fruit. Would you ever say that? But that's what Jesus said that we are. He said, you're, you're not the roots, not the soil, you're not the tree, you're not the farmer, you're not even the fruit. You are the stick that holds the fruit to the tree. You cannot produce fruit. You hear me? We cannot produce true love. When you go out and witness, it is not say, okay, I'm a Christian, so now I gotta love perfectly. You will fail. You cannot love your coworkers perfectly. You cannot love your spouse perfectly. You cannot love your kids perfectly. But what you can do is allow God to love perfectly through you. How did he do that? How does he do that? Through the Holy Spirit. That is the point of the Holy Spirit. God says, I know you can't do it. Read the Old Testament. So I'm going to put my spirit in you, that the love of God would be produced through you. And you know what that does for us? It takes the pressure off. Your prayer is not, God, please help me to love my coworkers perfectly so they can see your love. No, because you will fail. Your prayer is, God, please love my coworkers through me because they don't need my love. Guess what? Your kids don't need your love. Your love is flawed and it will screw them up more than it will fix them. They will get counseling because of your love. They will be twisted and blame it all on you because that's what millennials do. They need God's love. They don't need your love. You are a branch. You are a conduit. And what does John, what does Jesus say in John when he talks about the branch? He says this, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do no thing. As the Father has loved me, so have I have loved you. Abide in my love. What would transform Paul from a terrorist that would murder Christians to a man who yearned and longed for those same Christians years later with an completely transformed heart? It's the love that has transformed, hopefully, your heart in this room right now. At some point... Something happened to you if you were a Christian in this room and you know. Something happened to you and you know what it was? You experienced the power of real love. The world did not cut it for you. Your friends could not cut it for you. The relationships could not cut it for you. Money could not cut it for you. And in an instant, God, by his sovereign grace and power, opened your eyes to see true love and you were transformed never to be the same. The world needs true love and they have to understand that love is not a feeling and love is not a choice and love is not an action, though those things may coincide here and there. Love is a person. Love is a person. I'm going to say it again. To truly love, you must first be truly loved and know who love truly is. Write that down. May we be a church that loves not because we are trying to, to, to just be loving. 
Just maybe if we have enough programs and maybe if, if we get enough preaching, maybe if we get enough worship and then maybe we'll love right. We won't. May we be a church that loves because we have been loved, that loves because we understand what love is, and that loves because God is loving through us because we are jacked and we can save nobody. We can't save anybody. Our love is not powerful. This world's love is not powerful, but God's love is. Amen? Let's all stand. You guys can go eat lunch. Probably like, shut up. I'm starving. (laughs) Father in heaven, thank you that you are love. Thank you that when we want to know what love is, we simply look at you. Thank you that it's not up to us to define love, but that we have the opportunity by the Spirit and because of the cross to know love in the person of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this church, Lord. May we walk as gospel-centered people, people that are overwhelmed and overflowing with thanksgiving about what you have done for us because you've given everything for us. Thank you, God, so much. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Enjoy your Sunday. We'll see you.